how lucky we are to have such a fantastic panel here this evening. So just to kind of introduce you to them personally. At the far end, we have Johnny Campbell, uh, who's a BAFTA-winning director. Uh, his credits include, most recently, Informer, Westworld, In the Flesh, Eric and Ernie, and many, many others. Then we have S.J. Clarkson, um, whose most recent credit over here that I think we've seen would be Collateral, um, but has vast numbers of credits, Succession, Vinyl, many, many other shows, both in, in the UK and America. Um, then we have Tom Shankland, who is a BAFTA-nominated director. Most recently, he's been working on Les Miserables, which I always want to say Les Mis and never quite know how to pronounce the full thing. Les Miserables. Um, and his other credits include The City and the City, House of Cards, and, and many further credits. And then BAFTA-winning director Eros Lin, whose credits include Kiri, Damilo Lara, Love Boy, Happy Valley, and Sherlock, amongst others. So... Let's kick off. We're going to kind of take this through a relatively linear process from the beginning, hopefully right through to post-production, and then open it up to you guys to ask some questions. So in taking on a project, you've decided you're going to do it. Deals have been done. Terms have been agreed. How do you start preparing and start putting together a creative vision. Tom, if you could maybe kick us off with, you know, because I know you've talked about tone books and things like that. So how, how do you start preparing? I think the first thing to say is that the, 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 where if a script speaks to you without sounding, you know, too hippie-ish about it, but, you know, it's good to be a bit hippie-ish about these things, yeah. I think, because I think in the midst of making it where everything gets so, can be quite technical and about money and time, I think it's easy to lose sight of just that thing that you saw in your head or felt in your heart, in your heart when you first read something. So I, I, I think that it's about, oh, I, I would think, God, it's so good just to sort of preserve that, that, that kind of innocent emotional reaction to, to, to what you read and what happened in your brain when you, you know, when you connected with it and hopefully, you know, you've convinced people that you're the person for their project or it's something that you've, you've, you've taken to them. So, so I think after that, I, I sort of am a, a, a massive fan on trying to be as concrete as possible about accumulating as much material from anywhere you can in order to communicate that feeling that you had in your head. Because I, I think that you can spend a lot of time as a director talking, because you sort of talk to producers, you talk to crew, you talk to actors. So, but actually, a, lo a lot of the time, particularly when you're in your, with your HODs to create something that's, you know, you want to, to find the sort of the filmmaking visual grammar, the grammar of the, of, of the music, of course, the sound design, but you, I, I think it's about, it's about images, it's sometimes about bits of music. So I, I sort of become, get, so I, I sort of become very magpie-ish about just going out and trying to collect as many images as possible that I think tell a story about that feeling that I had. And then I, the other people that become your collaborators start to 
chip in, and that's where it all gets kind of hippie-ish, and you have fun, and you go to the pub, and you talk about it, you show each other pictures, you send pictures, and then you, you sort of gather these things, then the amazing costume department get involved, and they do their, their kind of thing with images. So then what I try to do is draw everything together into this sort of big book, this big kind of Bible, and, and, and then I, I will start to write a lot of, uh, well, hopefully not too much, hopefully sort of fairly clear sort of in, intentions around these images that might be about sort of color palette, tone, a location, a feeling, something around hair or what, you know, whatever the thing is that feels like it's a note that needs to be sounded. So I, I, I think that before it becomes about going around to locations and all the way in a way kind of during all of that process where you're doing your kind of conventional prep and you're, you're trying to kind of commit to it's that house or it's that you know, um, uh, that, that field. Uh, I, I do love to sort of have this sense that there is, there is, there is a vision that is f as, as well articulated and, and visually concrete as possible that people can look at, people can share. I think that conventionally there's usually a moment where you'll have to have a conversation with your broadcaster or your, you know, at, at, at some point it will become, you hope, kind of useful anyway, you know, at, at various points. But I sort of do that for me, whatever, because I, I sort of love to be able to return to that this as well. This is sort of a, literally a physical thing. It's a physical thing. And it, large it can get, and it gets bigger <laughs> and it can be about, like, sometimes it can it's be about a hundred pages of stuff that become, by the time the costume, the, when all of that is being built up, or the design, you know, the art department are kind of doing their thing. So it will end up being that. And it, it's, it's so that, you know, I'm, I'm a kind of, you know, a big believer that a, uh, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words as a, as a, as a filmmaker. So I, I, I think that's kind of, and it's also fun, and that's when you're kind of dreaming it. And I think you're just trying to kind of keep that dream going while whatever other decisions you're having to make or, Whoever else you're having to persuade that it's it sort of, you know, it's got to always be about the dream and not and about the budget. Then you look back at the end of the show and go, compare and contrast. Does the show uh, yeah, match? Definitely. And I think that sort of feeling that where it's so satisfying when you, I mean, you know, obviously you, as you know, as, as we all have like these magic moments when, when you're on set and someone does something extraordinary or an actor does some amazing take that you thought they'll definitely be crying and then they laugh and you're like, oh my God, <laughs> I never thought you could laugh. Uh, so, you know, you want the surprises to come left, right and centre, but, you know, it's great to have this, uh, this basic plan. And I think when you get to the end, for me, if I feel that we've shot the tone book, I'm delighted because then I kind of feel that you were in some way, you were directing, you were guiding this thing and you, you weren't being... It, it's just that risk that you can maybe flounder. Because, you know, we all, all flounder at some point. You'll lose your way. You know, that's inevitable. So, but it's kind of good. I always kind of feel if you've got that thing, if it exists somewhere. Back. Yeah. And sometimes it's as literal as, particularly on a long shoot, you know, uh, you've got a hiatus of two weeks or something, but then you can go back, reread it, you know, reconnect with it. And that, that's kind of cool. But actually, I think sometimes it's the process of, gathering that it sort of seeps down into your unconscious and it's sort of there for the duration. Yeah. So you then you just hopefully can kind of trust yourself when you're making all those micro decisions that actually it's kind of coming from that fundamental place. place of your vision. Yeah. Do any of you other guys work in a similar way? Do you kind of create a physical entity that you kind of can refer back to? Uh, yeah, I do, I do something very similar and um, and one of the challenges I find is just kind of keeping hold of it so it kind of 
kind of keeps it keep it stays focused yeah. and cuz because you know you want everybody you're working with to collaborate as much as possible yeah. and yeah. um and just kind of keeping keeping it uh, keeping it with with a sense of direction i guess is yeah. is uh, is one of the things that i um, i try and do and you know and in in tv crews are so good um, and they do what they do day in, day out. And the machine will make a show. You know, you will end up at the end of the six weeks with a programme. And, um, and it's always a challenge for us as directors to kind of keep it, to try and create something original, to try and create yeah. something that has its own voice, that's different to what's gone before, that is its own thing. And, um, and you know, having a physical document um, with images and, you know, and, and, and writing kind of keeps you uh, focused on, on making it its own thing. Yeah. So, Johnny, how, would, how do you lead on that vision? Um, I mean, I, mine tends to sort of grow perhaps over a slightly longer period of time in that I think you, it's always that engage, engagement with the script when you first read it, which you go back to, and when you're thinking about it in preparation for a meeting, um, that's you starting to run the race, essentially. Now, obviously, you might have those meetings and you don't get the job, but essentially, you, it, it, you've sort of impregnated the creative uh, ideas at that point. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's, you have to, for me, the story is, is absolutely everything, and, and everything has to emanate from that story and that connection that you make both with the script and then in the meeting with the people that have written the script and are producing it. You have to feel... It's a two-way street. You have to feel like you're absolutely, at that point in time, on the same wavelength and that, that they share your enthusiasm and, 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 and your love for that story. Um, and then for me, the visualization of it does grow, so there may be references, but I think mine, I probably, I don't actually create a physical book. I tend to do it on a wall so that other people can walk in and just see it mm. straight away and that um, it grows with the location pictures as I find elements of the jigsaw that feel like they're, they're part of, of what the show uh, that, that I want to make. But I, I, try and, I, try and keep, I try and keep that vision as loose as possible in that it can grow with things that you experience and the realities of the locations that you find and it has to adapt and mutate. Um, so mutability is quite important, I think, for me. SJ, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, all of the above, really. I yeah. think everything we're saying. So I don't Books want to be and walls. Repetitious about it, because, you know, I think, yeah. there is a, I think there is a director's process, which we probably all, all buy, into. <clears throat> buy into. But just to echo what Johnny said, which was just something I was going to add, is for me, preparation starts with that first read. It's incredibly important, the read of a script. Yeah. You know, when your agents, if you're fortunate enough to have a couple of scripts being sent your way, and you're thinking, what order to read them? They're like, oh, just read it on the tube, it'll be fine. I sort of have to... Mm -hmm. be in quite a, a specific space um, mm -hmm. to read a script because that first read is so important. You never get that back. Absolutely. It's like the first time you see anything. You never get that yeah, back. That you impression. know where the twist is coming. You know where the laugh is coming. And I sort of try and make a point of really concentrating on that first read and almost marking up on that script if I feel I'm connecting with it where those moments are so that I don't lose sight of that because... Inevitably, the process is very fluid, and by such, it can get watered down. So as wonderful as these books are, obviously, we're referencing, we're often, I can speak for myself, but I'm sure you guys as well, we're often referencing, you know, amazing photographers or $100 million movies, you know, and we're presenting these as we're going to make this on a TV budget of <laughs> 1.5 million, you know, and 
So it's going to get watered down in some way, but it's great to have that as your benchmark of where to go to, but you never get that first read back. And that's key, I think, for figuring out what it's about, where are the turning points, and what it means to you. Because once you've worked out what that story is, all of these images are fantastic as references, but they've all got to come into line with what the story is you're telling. Yeah. You know, and why is that? And, and sort of what is it about that story, or what is it about that character? So mm. the style is often, for me, dictated by that read in terms of what I'm going to do. And, and, in, and in thinking about, you know, that, that read and that first reaction to the script, how then, you know, do you go about that collaboration with the writer, you know, on something, say, like collateral, but, you know, on anything? How do you approach the relationship with the writer? I think you sort of have to get on the phone. I mean, with David and I, I was out in America at the time, uh, I think, doing a Marvel show, which couldn't be more different, really, from collateral. And uh, I think we got on the phone and we talked about what the show was about and what was important about it. And I think that was... That's why I say that that first read is so key, because I pretty much had that conversation with David very early on. Um, and we realised we were both wanting to tell the same story. But he was like, I don't want it to look like a procedural, and I don't want Nordic noir. And I was like, <laughs> right, OK. Uh, you've written quite a bleak story, David. But that's OK. We'll, we'll figure something out. And, and, you know, and it was about, he said, I want there to be colour. And it's about, I think, understanding the note behind a note. Because often somebody will say what they think, but as Tom mentioned so eloquently, a picture says a thousand words and people can think they want something but when they see it that's actually not what they want and it's our job I think to interpret what a writer's saying you know because they write the words and they are brilliant at it and then our job is to visualize it and realize it and create this 360 whole new world so I think it's about talking to the writers about what it is you want like for example when I did Jessica Jones um, it was a marble show but I was I, when I read it, 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 that wasn't what it was to me. It wasn't about superhero. It was actually about a woman who had suffered domestic violence. And so everything about my approach to that was about how do I tackle that subject matter under the umbrella of a superhero. And what made it really fascinating for me was she was a strong woman uh, and she had been abused. And I thought that was fascinating because there was a misperception about most women that abuse a week. Or, and I thought this is really fascinating to have this as a story. And I, when I spoke to the, uh, Melissa and Marvel about it, they actually were really taken by it. They said, we can't have it to be too bleak, but we love this and we love this way in. Because I said, I don't know any mind controllers. I don't know if you do. I'd love to meet them if you do. Um, <laughs> Not that many. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, so this is a mind controller, Kilgrave, paid brilliantly by David Tennant. We absolutely lucked out with him. But, you know, it was like, I don't know how to play that, but I do know of controlling men and mm. men who treat strong women in a certain way and actually get off about breaking strong women. So I think that's really interesting. So when you have that dialogue with the writer and you know what the show is, I then find it quite easy. And it's that initial meeting, I think, in many ways with the writer. It's as much about you interviewing them as them interviewing you. Yeah. Because if they see something different to you, then you probably shouldn't make the movie. Like if I'd said that and she'd said, absolutely not, this is about this cool superhero living in New York just waiting to get drunk again, I'd be like, well, <laughs> I'm not your person. But you know, once you know what it is you're making, then you can always go back to the core of what it is. So once you get that and the core, then all those images should sort of, I think, feed into that, that idea of what, what it is or that core sense of what the movie, TV show is about. And ultimately, that's your sort of barometer of where, that's what leads you throughout the development and creative process, I think. Brilliant. And Johnny, for you working, working with writers, have you found it, it varies a great deal, perhaps, between your experience on Informer, 
and the work you did on Westworld. Is, is there a real difference? Do you approach them in different ways? Um, well, very much so on the two that you, things that you mentioned. I mean, the, it, it's really important that, that there's a synergy and, a, and a, an understanding. You know, you're, you're being in, uh, sort of put in, in the care, you're, you're caring for the, the baby of the, of the writer or the writers in terms of informer, say. Um, so there has to be a real conversation and an understanding that, you know, you, you hit it off at the beginning of that journey. Um, with something like Westworld, where you sort of parachuted in to do uh, an episode mid-season, like I was, um, where it's particularly secretive and um, uh, everyone says it's, it's not normally like this because it's, this is, it's an American show. It's my first experience of an American show. So SJ's got um, hundreds of credits in America, and, and, and um, this is my first only thing. Mm. Um, but you, you barely get, you, you do talk to the writers, but they're not really looking to you for script notes per se. You know, it, it kind of almost, um, if you venture notes, then it's sort of, okay, yeah, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll think about, about that. And almost like, because they, they're so, they're, they had it so under control. Um, but yeah, you, you, you're, it's a very different setup. You're not there to, you're there as a hired gun. You're there to sort of continue something that someone else has conjured up, mm. and that's a very different experience. Yeah, absolutely it is. And, and let's sort of move on maybe to talk a little bit about casting and then choosing your HOD. So, Tom, casting. How, how do you like that process to work? How intimately involved in it are you? How wide-ranging do you want it to be? Is that for you about relationships with particular casting directors? Sorry, I'll stop asking questions. Lots of questions there. <laughs> no, Answer any one of them. They're all the right questions, because <laughs> I think, I mean, I'm incredibly reliant on casting directors mm. that I, I trust, and there's, there's uh, uh, quite a few. That, I mean, I, I've never had a bad experience with one, but there's, there's obviously a few that you gravitate towards. and. Uh, I, I always love that. I mean, obviously, there's you know, you, you know, one tries to watch as much film and TV and go to the theatre as much as you can, but you just can't do everything. So I, you know, I, I love that feeling when you're in a. So I suppose in a very sort of breaking it down kind of way, we would. Um, when it's at its most efficient, and you know, that we're talking about things, where, you know, a project where you're that you're kicking off. So you've working with a with a casting director, and sometimes it can be quite. Uh, I think it's good to be quite basic and just talk about each character and how you see them and share that information and, and, and just try and sort of convey some really basic stuff, how old you think they, they are, you know, whatever you're, the thing you're looking for. And then, you know, obviously getting deeper into the kind of psychology of who they are to a point without kind of overthinking it. Then, then after that point, I mean, uh, there, there, there's always the usual sort of um, star fuckery pressure to kind of like, let's see, let's just try and get the most famous person who says yes, you know, and kind of work down that list. So I, I, I think that you have, I'd say that the casting director relationship is, is very creative, and then I love that feeling of being in a room and having people come in. And I'll never look at CVs. I, I just sort of, like, you know, you always get handed the CV of the actor, and I, I will never look at it, because I just then I'll just start to go on some weird journey of, oh, God, I hated that, or oh, that was brilliant. <laughs> they should do that. That's what they do really well, whereas actually it's great to have someone come in 
and just be be you know be be sort of invent it for you you know before your eyes or or, or not and mm. you, I think that thing is pretty true that fairly quickly in that process you've worked out if, if they're kind of approximately right so in that process for me usually I'll assume that I'm going to see them again the ones that are like you know it won't it's kind of Sometimes it's great, and de depending on, on how big the part is, the smaller it is, it might be like you see them and you go, yep, it's them, we're in a hurry, we shoot that scene on Wednesday, yeah, they're, they're fine. If it's the bigger the part, you kind of assume if they are people that have agreed to read that you might see them again. So I'm, I'm quite up for being fairly, you, you, you know, you want to just make the actor feel comfortable in the room and uh, allow them to sort of give you their take. I, I, I think it's always quite good to do it twice because then you, not even if they do it perfectly, I think it's quite good to give a note to do something else just simply because I just, I kind of want to know on the day how they're going to be if I say, could you, can we look at something like that or that's not quite how I saw it. So even if they blow me away, I try to be a bit... Yeah, that's it's pretty good, but, you know, and then ju just purely because I think it's good to just try and build a, a working process or get a sense of how that might go. Then I, I think on the kind of the less creative, but you try and keep it creative way, is that the game of, let's see, wh who's the most famous person that will say yes? You just have to get in there and in a patient and... Uh, articulate hopefully but you know sometimes it can get a bit scrappy way just try and plead for reason because sometimes reason isn't you know the agenda of some of the elements in in the process uh he says discreetly um uh, stop now and uh, yeah good thank yeah. you Edgar. thank you so you know before just, you get in trouble yeah yeah, yeah. And, we're uh, with you yeah yeah and that but that's it's good because i think in the in that in the kind of like the trench of making it and you know there is an agenda particularly in a kind of marketplace where there's so much tv around i think it i totally get it it's helpful if there is the old-fashioned thing was you know who's our radio who's going to get us the radio times cover you know now which seems such an old-fashioned thing to say but i sort of as an image i kind of get that and then you you just have to sort of try with it so you know appreciate that as an agenda and then just try and work with that and then try and find someone that you know will just kind of carry the mm. essence of what you're what you're doing or who that person is but that's the more challenging end of it and on a show like kiri was sarah lancashire your choice was it your and the producer's choice was she attached already how how does that process vary, and how do you feel about that? I, I think she was... Mm, I'd worked with her before several times, right. and so we had a working relationship. And that, when you're working with a new actor, is worth its weight in gold, mm. because you know one another, you trust one another, and you know, you know, I, I can... I know what to say that to, to make Sarah kind of respond in a particular way, and, and she knows how to talk to me. So that, that's a short, brilliant shorthand. Um, and she's also a, a, an actor who an audience loves. So that made, it a, made her a very easy first choice for, for that casting. Um, because, as Tom says, you, know, you, you do need to sell your show. You do need to attract the audience. I mean, and you want the audience to go, oh, I love her. I really want to watch that because she's in it, which, which I think Sarah is one of those actors who, who makes the audience feel that. Um, and, and also, once you've got an actor like Sarah on... on on your cast, then it makes casting everybody around her that much easier because the execs feel safe because you've got somebody that they know will 
we'll anchor the show and we'll sell it. And then suddenly there's less pressure on needing to find famous names to, yeah. to, 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 for all the other cast. And, and, and then you can, you know, you're freer to kind of just cast really good people, of which mm. there are loads and loads of really good actors who aren't famous names and, and who, you know, who, you know, when they do a show in a good part that they've not, you know, of a kind of scale that they've not had before, suddenly they become a name and then, you know, you're in the same pickle again. But, um, but yeah. Good. And what about heads of department? SJ, your DP, how, how does that process work for you? Um, well, the process for me has been I've been with the same DP for about 13 years now, so uh, that's how that process works. Uh, he, <laughs> that's an easy process. That's an easy then. one. I mean, he, well, that's a, it's a rather special relationship, but it's also one that is very unique to like here because once yeah. you go to America, a bit like what Johnny was saying, you know, you don't always get to choose your HODs if you're parachuting into an episode. You do when you're doing a pilot, but still there's all about, you know, it's the same actually now with, because shows are becoming bigger and because there's more money around on these shows because you've got these co-pros like Netflix and it's going out on multi-platforms and um, everybody has a say in it, the same way they do about actors or certainly the things I'm up for, they're like, well, who's the DP going to be? And they have to be bankable in a way. They have to be somebody that's got something on their resume that they, or CV that they they can relate to and it gives them a you know an approval so you do need to get your HODs approved you can't just pick yeah, anybody you can't just pick anyone. but um Belange and I actually met on life on Mars and he was just a breath of fresh air mm. and I think you uh, not many times during a lifetime but hopefully a few when you're a director you meet these wonderful collaborators that are mm. like a half of yourself I think mm. in many ways Belage is a bit like the other half of my brain when I'm making something and and it's and we fight like cat and dog on set. I mean, people think we hate each other. <laughs> They're like, the way you speak, the subtext is, no, fuck you, no, fuck you, no, fuck you. And it's really not like that at all, but we are, we sort of have this fabulous creative level that we can actually argue on. I think it's a bit like what Eros was saying about Sarah. You have those collaborators where you can actually cut to the core and you don't always have time on a film set, especially TV, when you're up against it to kind of really explain everything. And if you can just cut to the chase. So... And he and I sort of see things the same. And, you know, I can be very hands-on with camera, and he allows that. And equally, I love it when he goes, this blocking looks a bit shit. And I think, <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're not wrong. Okay, we'll have another. You know, so <clears throat> it works both ways. But I think about finding HODs. You can stick with the same people, but there's... I'm fortunate because I do get to work with lots of other DPs as well. And I've got yeah. some favourite ones across the pond as well, and here too, um, because of all the work. And <clears throat> I think it's good to mix it up. And sometimes it's about... Or, or it should always be about finding the right sensibility for that job, you know, and you might, you know, I'm, I'm always looking, I don't ever want the same team completely. You don't want to move from one job to the next to the next. Shake it up a little. Yeah, yeah, I think it's just nice to shake it up and get a new voice in the mix. Yeah. And, you know, there are some there are some ones that you are with a lot, like my costume designer's been with me for about the same length of time, if not longer. And I just think it's really nice to have that sort of familiarity, but equally you want those new voices that come in that kind of question you. And like I like designers, I think designers are key for mm. me. Mm. And I don't think one designer fits all. I think designers have, there are designers that are incredibly good at period, there are some very good at contemporary, there are some very good at heightened, and they can all do everything, but there are some that I find really work in that way. So you're always looking for the one that brings to the table. Again, it's going back to that script and that first week, what does this what script, what is this script project? screaming at us to sound hippie again, but what is it screaming at me to what do? What it need? Mm. And you know, and I, I think on a number of occasions, I, I sort of like Tom and the rest of us put together a lookbook. It's often on a computer because I might do a little mood reel or something, but 
you know, it depends again on the show, what the network is. Some have to be really extensive. Some, if they know, you can be like, look a bit like this, and they're like, great. <laughs> um, but I think it's it's really interesting when you meet HODs and they come in. And on a number of occasions, I've met designers or costume designers, and they've got five or six images that are exactly the same as what's in my book. Yeah, and you just right. think, okay, that's yeah. that's a moment where you sit up and take notice. That Johnny, if I remember rightly, on In the Flesh you fought to have quite a, a young, at that stage, not hugely experienced designer. Yeah. Is that right? And, yeah, and you really that. hung out for him, and it, was in, you know, it certainly worked. It was very, very successful visually. Yeah, I've just worked with Sammy Clark so, yeah, again. on Informa yeah. as well. Um, yeah, and, and uh, I think, you know, I think it, it, yeah, the shorthand and the sort of the, almost the psychic communication that you get with someone. I worked with the same DOP, for literally over the last 10 years since. Um, first time I worked with Tony Slater-Ling was on in, uh, on the Shameless, first series of Shameless with Paul Abbott. Um, but then I've literally, the last seven projects pretty much, apart from the one in the States, has all been with Tony. And, um, you know, it, I think what you get with that kind of long-term relationship, apart from the, the sort of squabbles that, that are meaningless, but it's just... Um, an ease of working and a sort of a synergy of storytelling, and that's so important uh, because you can waste so much time discussing the positioning of a camera or lens and so on. Um, and so it's great to have a shorthand. But with Sammy, uh, he, he'd been doing commercials and uh, he'd been an art director uh, a couple of times. I think he was on um, uh, the, the Red Riding series as an art director. And he just came in, and he just had a, a fantastic sensibility for what the story was about. Uh, and that's also what I look for in an HOD and the choosing of an HOD. I don't take it for granted that I'll be able to work with the same person again. And even if they're available, we go through the process again, because it's, it's, it should be an option for them to say, do you know what, this isn't actually something I want to do. I don't think I can take it for granted. Oh, there's my team. I'm going to. It's almost like you re-interview people, because it's a new project. Mm. And you want to hear what their first takes, their first uh, impressions are of it, and almost re-engage on a new contract, of creative contract with them. Yeah. But with Sammy, he came in, and yeah, it was it was uh, tricky to uh, to um, to get an, a newcomer. But I think it's really important to to keep bringing new mm. uh, talent through the ranks. And I, I did a, I did casual vacancy with him, and then Informer just recently, and it was great <coughs> collaboration. Brilliant. And I guess there's a whole other set of parameters that need to be considered when you're doing a period drama. And I think, you know, I'm going to cut to a clip now. This is an exclusive preview of Les Miserables. And then if we can have a bit of a... Not all six hours. Not all six <laughs> hours. It's okay. Just a small segment, yeah. but very exciting nonetheless. I have heard say that you have not seen any other version of Les Mis. You That's haven't true. been to the theatre, <laughs> yeah. you haven't seen the film. It, and it's such a sort of sacred cow of a story in some ways. How did you, therefore, was that very sort of, were you very pleased that you just happened not to have seen it, that you could then relate to it in a different way? Perhaps? Absolutely, because it just meant that it was going to be so unfiltered so I, I was sent the Andrew's uh, script I think I was sent two or three and um, I just, all I had in my if I, if someone had said it I could, it was that poster you see everywhere and it was maybe Susan Boyle 
and uh, <laughs> and probably and hath, I guess I'm sure you know of course Hugh Jackman was there Some, someone you know is in you so that was about all I had in my head and then so so then you read it and I, and I was kind of thinking and then Andrew every sort of other stage direction might be yeah he's it's you know it's, it's a bit like Jack Palance uh, in Shane that bit and I'd be kind of going. <laughs> All right, so right, Andrew. It's actually it's a western. I'm oh, I get it. You know, so it's sort of. So I started to kind of just go on a journey first with Andrew, and his take on it, and then you know went off to read the novel, and then you get this sort of unbelievable, rich, you know, digressive, fascinating, you know, cracking story, but but just also just full of these amazing essays and philosophical discourses on French history and the Paris sewage system and nuns, um, <laughs> and you and it's just like wow, this is mind blowing, and then you sort of start to get back to you know what we're sort of all talking about that kind of that first thrilling read where you go you, you know where 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 suddenly these this story is just sort of touching you and I so I just had so little between me and did you you read the book as well as reading then it? I, yeah I read I sort of straight away read the book and uh, just to sort of find out if Andrew had been cheating or not and uh, <laughs> uh, but he hadn't he uh, yeah and it, I mean he he'd done there were so many decisions that were made because it's a sort of an insane sort of like all great 19th century melodramas, it's coincidence-ridden and kind of like crazy, like no one would believe it. So, you, you know, Andrew had done quite a lot to sort of deal with some of the mechanics of that, but, but essentially it was just this sort of beautifully powerful, overwhelming experience when, when I sort of first read it. So then I, then I very much made a deliberate decision to not watch any other version and just sort of... Yeah, Does but occasionally that have DNA pure absolutely. for how you want. But but to occasionally you would have those conversations where you go, oh, you know what? There's this bit in the novel where they they make you know bullets with like they do it in the pub just but and then and then they would go, no, they did that in the film. Yeah, and I was like, oh <laughs> shit, all right. So but so luckily I had a couple of people that like, every time I thought oh, I've had a brilliant idea, they'd be no, nah, done. <laughs> done. So and in a way it was quite that was quite good because then I'd sort of go off that a bit and then I'd try and sort of find okay, what Another. else could we? Could we do? But but way better that than me sort of having to have a very very sort of superficial thing of oh I just don't want to do that. Yeah. I want it to be a bit more. Oh, that can't so you know what I mean? That would have been so. Wind a route uncomfortably yeah. between all of those verses. Yeah. So it's just it was only ever really the book and Andrew, and then after that just sort of what 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 me and the gang could could sort of you know Excellent. bring bring from it. Yeah. And and us. In terms of, of getting into the DNA of a real story, you know, that you've then got to find an, an original and unique way of telling, I think it would be really useful to look at a clip of Kiri now, if we might. So what, what were the challenges of taking on a, a real-life story and kind of getting into the DNA of, of that form of storytelling? I mean, I think with um, with Kiri, we were because it's it's based on a number of true stories, yeah. and and I think during Jack Jackson's writing process, I think he was very careful to not make it any single one um, in order to keep it in order to not get sued, I suppose, uh, but also because he wanted to tell other stories um, about about race and about. Um, about uh, belonging and adoption and ownership of children and and um, and I think um, 
when I got the script, um, the thing for me was was not thinking about any of the, the true stories I'd read, in, you know, as, as journalistic pieces, but of, of what my emotional response to it was. What did I feel about this character? What was interesting about um, Sarah's character's flaws? Um, she was kind of a, she's a heroic character. Mir Miriam in the story is a heroic character, but she's also um, got this alcohol problem. She tries to do her best, but she does something um, that leads to a, a girl that's in her care. She's a social worker. A girl in her care gets um, murdered, uh, without spoiling it completely for you. Um, and, and I think, I think, um, um, I think you know, uh, having complex um, human characters with lots of different facets to them um, is, is one of the most exciting things uh, for me in, in drama and, and that's what appealed to me in this script and, and is what we try to make. And how did you sort of decide on the tone because it has a very very particular tone as a piece as well? Yeah I mean I think you know the, w television is um, predominantly in, in the UK is, is social realism and, and sometimes a, a gritty story set in a real world can sometimes feel a bit, can, it, well, there's a danger of it feeling a bit grim. And we, I was very keen for it never to feel grim, to, to that, you know, in everybody's life there's joy and there is light and there is hope and, and, um, and none of us want to sit down for an hour of, of, a, of an evening and, and watch a piece that has none of those qualities. So, so I think tonally, I was trying to find something that had wit in it, that in, in, in this clip that you've just seen, there's, there's you know, an inherent humor in the fact mm. that um, a social worker visits her drug addict client, um, but it's the client who supports the social worker. And, you know, and finding those dualities and the comedy in the real was something that tonally we were, we were constantly searching for. Yeah, and great use of one on the on that just for on the, the way the score is working on those first few really puts you allows you to enjoy it a lot. It's great, yeah. Um, and, and and I think you know searching for a score that kind of you know it's really hard because there's so many great scores out there. But but you know when you temp a piece with a, a, a score that exists, it's really hard not to fall into the trap of it sounding like everything else and mm. trying to find something um, that is original and yet feels of it was was something we tried to do. Yeah, very successfully. Yeah. And Informer again is a very specific piece tonally. It has a very very specific and unique tone to it be great to look at that clip and then have a chat about it. How did you approach it? Um, well, it, 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 it was uh, in the house nowhere to start. I mean, this was Naban Rizwan's first ever TV or film, he, he, young, the young actor playing Raza. Um, and this was his first scene um, in the piece. And so first things first, it was quite clear that I wanted to push it as far down the schedule as possible to give him enough time to get used to acting for screen and to to get build the confidence and to be uh, to be that kind of charming personality that we need to really care about and like right from that first scene but also more importantly than that it goes right back to the first ever meeting with the writers um, which when I got the job um, they cited what I said about that particular scene as the reason why I probably got the job in the first place, which was um, obviously then no pressure when you're actually shooting the scene. But um, also the, for, for them, what I'd said in the room was something along the lines of 
um, it sort of it was a metaphor for the whole story, really, and, and about this character's um, experiences and the prejudices that he faces on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and, and it was, in a way, the knocking off of the first domino of, of the whole story. It also has a kind of fateful uh, quality with the fact that he steals his camera. Anyway, um, so, so there are lots of things, kind of constellation of elements coming together. Uh, and coupled with the fact that here's this, this guy who's basically a chameleon who adapts to his environment and he's dressed himself up in sort of hipster uh, style to, to, to sort of appeal to these people that he's trying to, to, to get in with, only realizing that it's, it's not really for him. Um, and so this, the way I shot that scene was, was to both to give him the, as many opportunities to run the scene as possible, which was from, as you can see, loads of different angles. Mm -hmm. But also because that was like the odd one out of the way I shot the whole thing, which was it, it was like a fake environment. It was almost over stylized, mm. um, but deliberately so because he, he never get we never shoot it ever. It's like very at odds with everything else. So it kind of the, the way of shooting it and, and I had to make sure I scheduled enough time uh, to allow myself to do that because it was only, I don't know, maybe a two page, a three page scene or whatever, but I, I needed like half a day. And I set aside that amount of time to, to make sure I could give him the platform to, to be in that zone and, and get that performance. Brilliant. Well, I think as a kind of really interesting compare and contrast, you know, now we're talking about shooting and the pressures and, you know, in your case, trying to buy yourself that, that period because you knew how important that scene was. There's a kind of similar and yet completely different experience that, that you had on Collateral, and we're going to look at the collateral clip, if we might. So I believe there were some sort of particular factors that informed your decisions as to how to approach that scene. It'd be really interesting. Yeah, well, it was yeah. a, you know, collateral was a four-part thriller of which two episodes were shot at night. So, of course, when you're going to shoot a show at night, you always shoot it in the summer. Uh, and that Obviously. Is, it's what happens every single time I've ever had a show at night. You're always shooting it during the summer months. So we had a really limited window with night time. And we basically had too much work for the location. And that was originally four separate scenes. And David Hare, by his own admission, was like, I don't want it to be a procedural, but I've got to get this information at the crime scene. And I said, but David, we can't have four scenes that jump cut at the same location with nowhere to go, and they, we couldn't go anywhere because they were all at the crime scene. And um, I only had a day to shoot that, and uh, that was three hours of night. So I thought, well, I've got to come up with something. So I figured I'd see if I could do it in a one uh, which is what that's known as. So that's just under eight pages in one shot. Uh, so we amalgamated the scenes together, cut the fat of what we didn't need, got all the information that we did while still keeping the character. And then, you know, I basically rolled the dice because if, I, if it hadn't worked, I was fucked. <laughs> you got a double six, basically. <laughs> yeah, I rolled the dice on it. And, and, and it worked out brilliantly for a number of reasons. One is I'm a great believer in rehearsal, if you can get it. And every actor will tell you they want rehearsal. And as soon as you hand out the rehearsal schedule, suddenly they're all busy. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, they, everybody's like, we have to have rehearsal. We never have rehearsal in television, so you arrange rehearsal time and they don't turn up. Um, but when I uh, mentioned this to Kerry, because Kerry and I met in, in very early on, and, and I mentioned to her this scene, and I said, look, I've got this idea to do it as a one, and she went, I love it, I'm totally behind it. And when I knew I had number one on the call sheet there, behind me with it, I said, great. So 
you know, I, you know, made sure I got a cast of people, a lot of which had done theatre, thankfully, so I know they can sort of, once the sh curtain comes up, they can run. Because you can work with some phenomenal actors, but they can't do long takes, right? Some of them just are, by their very nature, <clears throat> stopping and starting. So I used the opportunity, really, what was the negative, which was only three hours of night, to come up with something very exciting. And I did it, I think it was the first or second day. So I was literally balls to the wind. Oh, my God. <laughs> Not that I have any, but you get the bigger <laughs> speech. But, uh, yeah, so I, so I basically was like, look, if we're going to do it, let's... And it also would set the tone, because I yeah. knew I wanted to do quite a lot of one as it were. And, and I think they're overused sometimes, but in collateral, because it was about character. It was a character-driven piece, a state-of-the-nation piece, and I wanted to be led by the characters, and I wanted them to be choreographed in a way that you landed and you were listening to the person you should be listening to or you were listening as somebody else was reacting so you were getting the stories rather than I think than it also gives you that. that sense of her constantly searching and moving forward. And it's and also it, what happens. I mean, yeah. we, we worked alongside an amazing female... DCI. She's the only homicide detective in London, female homicide detective in London. And we sat down with her and she said, you're in. She talked to us about all the information she got. She's in, she's out. And we didn't want it to be a procedural. They don't do what they do in the movies and the TV shows. You know, I didn't want to do, I've done TV police stuff, but I didn't want to do close up of the evidence and using the Soco camera flash to get you in and out of cuts. I was like, been there, done that. I want to do something different and what it's really like. And they really do just go in, get the scene, get the information, get everything from everybody else, and they're on the move. Mm -hmm. They don't hang around. They leave everybody else to do that. So I wanted to be true to that. And so what it meant is we ended up, uh, after the read-through, the next day, I called a rehearsal, and it was a four-hour rehearsal call at the location. Um, and we rehearsed it. I mean, I'd been down there days in advance, walking around, reading it out loud, looking like a weirdo in the street, and then you bring your... Muttering. AD, muttering <laughs> to myself, and stepping out on the road <coughs> and run over, and then my AD came with me, and then Balazs DP came with me, and then I got my Steadicam operator. Uh, and it ended up that I actually had to grip the shot, because I, I had to be... We couldn't... Everybody couldn't fit in, because there were yeah. so many camera shadows. I it was a 360 yeah. in three directions. So I knew what I was asking everybody was massive, but I thought, if we do this on day one, I think it was day two, because we added interior first, but if we do this on day two, then everybody's going to know that this is the setup of the show, because I think it's a very big thing for a director to set the tone of the show, both on set as well, about what this show's going to be, you know, and I've had it before where you start slow and everybody thinks this is a slow show, so I was like, no, we're going to be off and, and running, and everybody had to be on it, and my AD team were wonderful, and we worked it all out and had the Steadicam operator there, but because I was having to do an awful lot of this way, hold back, hold back, I needed to be with the camera, so I was literally dragging Barney around and hanging on to it for dear life in some moments um, whilst we did this scene. But we did, we rehearsed, so we rehearsed in this four-hour call the day before, and then on the day of the shoot, everyone was looking a bit white, the producers, because we didn't turn over until, you know, nine hours into the day, because all we did was rehearse it in the day, and then as soon as it went to night, that was the first opportunity we really had to see it at night on camera. So we did a couple of dry runs, and then we went for it, and take 12 is what you've just seen. Wow. Good yeah. work. And, what, and what, was your, what was your plan B? I didn't have one. Oh, really? <laughs> I just, well, the plan B was kind of like, if we don't get it, I, I thought we might have to pick up a few bits and pieces. Um, but I, I had a few techniques, because the more you do, the more you can buy time for yourself. So, for example, a little thing I did, which was just one of the few things I did in this scene, is having done a show called Dexter in the US, where there was a lot of blood, always blood and it's one of the messiest things to clear up so when you're doing a, a show like that a shot like that you know Abdullah's lying on the floor in a pool of blood now that looks great but if you imagine take 12 everybody walking through that it's going to be it's suddenly then you've got to allow time for the props guys to run in and set dressing to clean it all up and you know how long that takes so on Dexter what we used to have was this little secret stash of 
plastic blood. And it's basically pools of blood, and you can get them made in various shapes and sizes. So that is actually plastic blood on the floor. Plonk it down. You plonk it down underneath. Love him, it. And then you can walk over it as many times as you Yay. like. And then if there's any footsteps, you just paint those out in posts. So the um, biggest secret you'll learn. There you go. You'll love it. Honestly, if you ever need blood, just use <laughs> yeah. plastic blood. Plastic blood. And I also knew that one of the things I did, again, and it's where experience builds up, because I probably wouldn't have tried to do that years ago, you know, it's because I've done a bunch of one since, and, and I knew I needed to keep some VFX money, because no matter how good you and the crew are, shadows, yeah. You know, we had about five really bad camera shadows and the VFX team were unbelievable. They were so good at painting it out. And, you know, we actually had to paint somebody running a flag out as well. But it was it was worth it. You, nobody else saw it, but I did. I said, I, I can't live with that. So, <laughs> you know, so it's about knowing how to tackle something like that. And, yeah, I guess the backup was we knew we'd, something else would have to crunch. But I was sort of bloody-minded about it, really, and just said, we're going to do it. And, and thanks to my fantastic cast and brilliant crew, I mean, Barney on Steadicam, I think, deserves an award for that shot alone. He was unbelievable. And having someone like Kerry Mulligan at the front, and, and they didn't drop it. We had one, one, one person drop to line once on one take, and the rest of it, they were absolutely perfect. They're unbelievable. So Seems kudos nice. to my cast and crew. And kudos shot. to you. Um, OK, let's talk a little bit about post-production. Eros, is there a particular way you like to approach relationship with your editor, editors, how you like to approach post? Because I think it varies amongst directors. Yeah, because you know, because the the, the, the saying is that you 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 make the show um, several times and, and you make it again in post because it's the first time you see it all together and it's there in front of you. So so, and, and in the edit, you can kind of, you know, you can transform something and you can kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's about reminding yourself of, of what SJ was talking about. What is at the heart of it? What, mm. what made you want to make this in the first place? And you kind of try and remind yourself of that and try and find that in the material. And, um, and it's great to work with editors that I've worked with before because there's a shorthand, but they're not always available. And sometimes you work with a new person, and you know, sitting in the edit with a new person, you kind of, there's a lot of getting to know you time where you kind of work out what it is that they understand from the material, and 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 you know, working out that way of communication. But but yes, sitting in the edit is about kind of trying to remind myself of what it is that I I first saw in the script, mm -hmm. and trying to make the material kind of sing to that. And Johnny, you 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 quite a, a radical approach to how you worked with editors on Informer, didn't you? Um, well, largely out of necessity, in that there was just one of me over the six hours. So I don't know whether you're having something similar on Les Miserables um, at the moment, but um, obviously, if you do it in a linear form, then it would take a long time to do that. So we had to have two edits weeks, but I didn't want to just have one editor doing say, the front half, and the other editor doing the back half, like a pantomime course. <laughs> um, also because it would have been a very different stylistic mm. creative approach. So um, right from the beginning, Julian Stevens, the producer, and I talked about it and said, well, do you think we could get two editors who basically are happy to kind of collaborate over the whole show and to basically assemble both be across all of the material right from the beginning. And that was going to have a cost implication. Um, but at the same time, it was going to give huge benefits later on in post. So um, we, we met um, these editors that we wanted to work with, Gareth C. Scales and Fiona Colbeck. And 
you know, asked the, the question, uh, we'd want you to work on the show, but we'd like you kind of both to be basically taking in all of this material and then being free to dart and dance around each episode as and when required. So I was obviously a constant, and so were they. We'd have lots of uh, triangular conversations, and if we did a viewing, we'd all sit and view it together and share thoughts. And what was good about that for this particular project is that there was a lot of osmosis between the episodes anyway, um, because of the nature of the storytelling with different timelines and so on. And I really needed both editors who would be assigned to a particular episode at a certain point, maybe during the course of a day, they might work on three different episodes at any one time uh, because of the demands of the viewings and, and, and of, uh, of, of what was required. But it meant that I also wanted to lock as late as possible all six episodes. So often what you would do is you would, you would, offer, you would lock in a staggered sort of format so that the post-production can continue with the sound and music and what have you. But with this particular project, because of the osmosis and because of just the, you know, you discover something in episode five and you go, ah, oh, we need to change that in episode two, I really wanted to delay the whole lock process. Um, uh, and it meant that we all kind of shared a very collaborative approach and it, it was it was and very I think rewarding. Much more re rewarding for the editors well, I as hope well. So. Yeah, I hope right. so. But I mean it was it, you know it meant that they essentially had to digest all of the material in almost the same amount of time that they would have done if they were just doing half. Um, but we, it, it, you know I think ultimately it was uh, a, a really rewarding. So I think experience. then as the head of the department you look at a show and you feel an investment in the whole show yeah, rather than totally just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How how are you working it on then Liz? With, um, uh, it, it, so we have three, we've locked all uh, six. So we have, uh, there were three editors. Right. And uh, I would have liked to have sort of checkerboarded. So it's so a little bit more conventional mm. in that they all sort of took possession of, of two episodes. Uh, but we did this thing that I, I did. So the first time I tried it was on the missing out of necessity because we had to deliver well in advance of what would have been, if we'd been doing it in a linear fashion, it just never would have worked. So we had a uh, setup where we had three cutting rooms. Oddly enough, Fiona was one of the editors <laughs> and was brilliant and, uh, and came in and because and, it sort of needed to be that, that, that the, the case that uh, the editors would sort of end up assembling some work that would end up in someone else's show, which is a, you know, kind of can be a little bit contentious with editors sometimes, but everyone had, had a, you know, a very good uh, communal approach to the whole thing. So we had, we, we'd sort of tried to, we, we set up a schedule where we'd have to lock three episodes on, in one week. So uh, it, it would be this great dance between cutting rooms. Um, and the only way it worked, and I, I, I sort of remember in the, in the first year when I was at film school, they had, they'd only just bought a, a, a lot of Abbots. So we were, so we could have been editing in a, you know, in a, digital way, but they made us work on Steenbeck's for the first year film. And the, but the reason for that was, uh, was actually so you would appreciate, because you know, as, as you all know, the time it takes to sort of cut a bit of celluloid and go, oh no, bit there, you know, hang it up, and then sort of watch it, do it all again. I mean, that takes so long. But you, so obviously, traditionally, the director and editor would, would sort of talk more, and the editor would, so you'd sort of really get as clear as you could about what story you were going to try and tell 
on this pass or where you felt the rhythms could be changed or where you wanted to sort of feel a bit closer to somebody and a bit less close to that person and all those great conversations. But you'd sort of have that and then walk away and the editor would, would work. And I think with great editors, I, that, that's kind of an approach I like to do anyway, whatever we're, we're working on, is, is, is really just watch a whole car in silence and then um, what, where even if it's the assembly where you, know, you just sort of measure what form of suicide you want to commit. <laughs> you know, if it's, if it's fast, that's good. You know, slow, less good. But you, know, you just sort of watch it, talk about it, watch it again, walk away, just work out how much time they want, come back. And then so I'd only end up really fine cutting with the editor uh, later down the line. But that, that enabled me to jump between cutting rooms, to watch cuts, talk about it, walk away, and then, yeah. And does the process differ when you're doing American shows, SJ? Yeah, I mean, it's famous that the uh, American edit is much quicker. Um, so, but it depends. I mean, if you do a pilot in America, then you usually get longer anyways. Um, and I will say, and it's no detriment to editors here at all, it's just a different process. Yeah. So, you know, when you get out there, I, I remember when I did, I think the first American show I did was Dexter, where I got my rubber blood. Uh, but um, it was, I remember going to the edit and, you know, normally you want to shoot yourself in the face the minute you see your material, isn't it? The first Absolutely. director, you know, the fine cut that your editor shows you. I don't, we were talking about this before, I don't think any one of us have watched it and gone, yay, this is great. You literally <laughs> want to kill yourself, I think I've now found out. Um, and when I went to, to the edit to watch Dexter, I was like, I'm watching an episode of Dexter. Mm. Wow. You know, now, now that was a, a show that was up and running, so it's very difficult when you start a show, but it's quite a machine out there. It's a business. And they have, you know, each editor has an edit assistant who is kind of would probably be an editor here mm. on most shows. So there's a hi much higher level. And then there's post, there's a, the, the post-production team is huge. You've got a post-production producer, a coordinator, assistant uh, coordinator. You've got someone on music. I mean, when I did vinyl, there was a whole team to cut music. So when we, you know, would be shooting a music sequence and you'd go in and you'd go, I need a bar and a half out of this set a shot here, can you do it for me? You'd send it to them, they would cut the music down, edit it, send it back to you, and then it fit. And you, so everything's much quicker because it's, uh, it's, got a, it's a machine, it's, it's an infrastructure that allows you to do that. So even though it is only four days, you know, if it is an up and running series, then honestly, some of the cuts I've got have been extraordinarily good. And you think, wow, because the music will be on, you know, it will be refined. The machine is that well oiled. It is, and they've mm. usually got a visual effects person in-house. Yeah. So that, you know, some of those things have been <coughs> temped, and the temp into the standard they do is extraordinary. You know, and there have been versions where it's a nightmare and you're sort of, you know, ground up re-editing again. But as I say, in a pilot, you get a bit longer. I think I got about two weeks mm. when I did Jessica and Defenders. But it's still not long. But they also do longer days as well. I mean, I know that we have some long days in the edit, but it's standard. So. It is and it isn't. It's certainly quicker. You must have felt this on Westfield, but I don't know. It's just, it's just you're part of a machine and, you know, it's up and running. If you're on a good show like a Westfield or a Dexter, you know, they're, you know, Michael C. Hall had a, um, a voiceover booth in his trailer and he would record <laughs> your voiceover for you for the show because Dexter was so much about his voiceover. So he would record it for you. You know, we got on really well, so go, do you want to hear it back? Is there anything you want me to do? And he'd send that to the edit. So that would be sent to the edit before you got there. So usually that's me in a microphone pretending to be whoever's voiceover <laughs> it is. It's <laughs> terrible. Yeah. And like not doing yourself any favours whatsoever when it, the execs come to watch it. You've got all that already, all you know, which was, which was good. But it is different. And sometimes it's frustrating. I, I sometimes find it frustrating how you're kicked out and you're not 
part of that creative process. But I, I, I guess I look at it a different way. It's a machine out there, and as long as I've delivered and they're happy with it... As long as you can have a bit of both. I just don't watch it go out. I mean, I just if I haven't seen it through to the lock and deliver, actually delivered it like a birth, if I haven't delivered it, I just don't you watch it. No. Yeah. I've no interest in seeing where they made a cut or where yeah. they took the sound out or where they changed a piece of music. I have no interest no. In, in that whatsoever. And I think it's the only thing that keeps you getting out of bed and going to work and given 150% every day. <laughs> yeah, right? One, one final question before we throw it open. Is there something that you guys wish you'd known about the craft of directing that would have helped you short circuit some of the journeys you've had to take, something you'd known much earlier on in your career that you know now? Tom? Probably that crews are amazing and that, that <laughs> collaborators are, you know, we all have had better or worse experiences with some members of the, of the team. But I think when, where, however you start, inevitably it'll be a version of making short films and you, usually in some form or another. And I think that you tend to sort of feel obliged to do pretty much everything. So that, that, that feeling when you meet those great allies uh, and I, yeah, I remember kind of doing things where I used to think that like a first AD was kind of like this enemy who, because they, <laughs> they, that, and I'd be, I'd do things like on set where I wouldn't tell, you know, I thought I, I better I'm not gain tell them. my first I better AD. not tell them how many shots I'm going to do or want, because I'll be really, you know, then we'll have a fight about it. So I just won't. And then they'd be like, oh, but you know, the day when it, you know, it's seven o'clock, you know, and I bet I haven't finished. And then you get into kind of like, arguments and it's all very very boring but unless you're in america and they're like okay it's fine how many hours more do you want <laughs> yeah. but I, I do think in the in the in the kind of english thing i was just there's sort of i think if i'd known that everyone kind of wants you to be good they, they don't want you you know they're not they're kind of on your side i mean there'll be endless amounts of negotiation within that particularly on on, on the production end but kind of rightly so you know you're all doing you just everyone wants to do good work so i think that I sort of, there are a few productions where I look back and I think if, if I just sort of thought, you know what the, what, what, the best thing is to kind of go there, see those people, be as clear as you can about what you'd, you'd love, um, hear them out and hear their brilliant ideas or their problems and just try and uh, go into it with a plan that everyone's aware of and, and, and then see how you go. And then if it's not working, usually, you know, people can help each other out. So I think that, that would be the thing that, that I learned rather than... And then trust them. Yeah, and yeah. trust them. And just, you know, be clear and about what you're after. And I think everyone can make it together rather than in, in factions, yeah. Eros? Yeah, I think, it's, I think um, for a long time, I was learning about how to make shows that looked like the things that I admired. And, um, and, and now the pennies dropped that I need to make shows that are in my heart. And, and I think that quest to be original is something that I wish I'd known that earlier in my career. Mm. Johnny? Um, I think, yeah, you sort of cast your mind back to uh, when you, you kind of cut your teeth and when you're starting out as a director, it's almost like there, were, there was a, a sensation perhaps that you had to be very single-minded and, and really um, uh, kind of realizing your vision whereas in fact what you realize is is that you're far the, the sum of the parts is far greater if you just um allow everyone around you to be brilliant um and that especially note taking when you get notes on 
an edit and you think it's perfect because you've 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 got to a certain point and you and I'm talking about when earlier on in the career and you'd send it out and you'd get notes and comments back and there was always a kind of a real anger and bitterness <laughs> and fucking dare you yep. give me notes <laughs> but what Deep you realize is yeah. what you realize is um, is that actually you should be greedy for as many notes as you can get. And yes, you'll ignore the ones which are shit, but <laughs> there are brilliant notes to be had and that the people that have got a much more objective point of view than you have. And that it's not about <coughs> uh, compromising at all. It's just about being mut mutable. It's about adapting <laughs> to your environment. It's about um, making it better through whichever notes you can take. And I think you look, I look back at a young version of me and go, what a little shit, you know. <laughs> um, probably being really arsy about things when actually people were just trying to make it better. And SJ? Um, yeah, God, so many things in a way. I mean, I think to that point, I think to listen and be selectively deaf in equal measure. <laughs> to know when you to know. be selectively yeah, deaf. Yeah, and I think for me, I think it was having the confidence to find to allow my voice to come through. So a bit like what Eros said, I think for a long time I thought I needed to, as you say, make, especially if you're going on to a show and a series, it's very difficult to like not want to mimic exactly what's been done, but yet still allow yourself to flourish and shoot it in a way that you want to film it. And I think there's always a balancing act between delivering if you're doing episodic and if you're, you know, doing a pilot. Obviously, it's your it's your job to have that vision. But for so many of, uh, of directors out there, and us still from time to time, you end up doing episodics as we do in America. And it's about ha having the confidence in your own voice. And I think that probably took me longer, even though it might not have appeared that way. I think it took me a long time to really go, actually, I I have got something to say. Yeah, and I can say it. Thank you, guys. Let's let's throw it. I could go on asking questions all evening, but let's throw it open to the floor. Okay, there's a gentleman right at the back. I see. His hand was up first, I think. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much for coming. It's a fantastic lineup. Uh, all of you. I could ask you all loads of questions, but um, I'm going to pick on Eros for a uh, question. In the the first episode of Kiri, which I haven't seen since it went out, I think I remember it rightly. There's a scene where Sarah Lancashire's character meets her social worker bosses for the first time. Uh, again, I, I don't remember. It feels like it was quite long, maybe five minutes longer. And there's two things about it I want to ask. One is a sort of slightly anarchy question, which is how long did you set aside to shoot that scene? And the other question is more an artistic one, which is I also remember there were, particularly on Sarah's reverses, there were some quite unusual angles that you chose. And I remember thinking, do you... Do you plan that? Did you worry that that might not work? Did you know exactly what you were doing, or was it a mistake? <laughs> you know, how do you dare to do that, especially on a sort of network show like that? Yeah, I think I think one always worries that something's not going to work, um, and um, and especially if you if you choose something that's un, unusual, that's that's not um, conventional then you're, in, you're, you're inherently making a statement and you're kind of drawing attention to yourself as a director, which, which is something that instinctively I, I try not to do. Um, but when we made those choices, it was myself and Matt Gray, the DOP, we, we talked about it, we talked about what, how we wanted to make the audience feel. That was our starting point. How did we want the make the, to make the audience feel about um, Sarah's character in that moment? She was kind of exposed she was um, she was being cross-questioned by two of her bosses um, and um, hung out to dry and and we wanted 
I, that's what I wanted to make the audience feel. So, so yeah, that, that, that was the way we came to it. Um, and I think we, you know, um, I, I, the first, first AD will help me um, set out how much time a scene needs. I will, I will always have shot listed everything we'll, in, during prep. We'll know exactly what the quantity of work is. You know, what, you know, are there any requirements that the actors have? Is there any technical stuff that that particular scene needs? So um, I can't remember how much time, but we gave it what it needed. And, and we'd, we'd figured that out ahead of time. And that's always the secret. You know, you, you plan to shoot what's possible. Um, and, and then you've got a fighting chance. If, if, if you're, you know, if, if it's if it's too ambitious, or if you're, if you know, if you're with your first AD, if you're not taking everything into account, that's when you get into trouble. Someone here, lovely. Just lady at the end here. Yep. Yep. Um, I just wanted to ask two questions. First, um, in this day and age, is uh, film school essential um, to? Uh, make TV drama, and two, um, <clears throat> what was your path into the industry as a director? Did you have to work your way up? Normally in um, TV drama, it seems like everyone does the same role just for years and years. If you're an AD, you're AD. If you're a focus puller, you're a focus puller. So just wanted to ask those two questions. I don't think we'll have time to ask all of the guys here that question. Is there somebody specific you'd like to ask it of? Um, is it possible to ask... Uh, Sarah, Sarah, Sarah. SJ. SJ, yes. Yes, SJ. Uh, um, I started in theatre originally. Um, I didn't know anybody in theatre or the entertainment business, but I went to see some shows, and I remember seeing many amazing things on stage, including it raining at the end of Act One and singing in the rain, and I thought, whoever <laughs> gets to make it rain indoors, that's the job I want. <laughs> and on a, on a lot of the programmes that I went to see, there was a man's name called Cameron McIntosh, so I figured he must know something about theatre. So I wrote to him and said, I'd like work experience, please. And he said, OK, but you're 15 and write back <laughs> to me when you're a bit older and we do have a job for an office junior, so why don't you come in, you know, apply for that in three years' time. So I wrote to him probably every three months for three years and uh, eventually got an interview and then a second interview on the third one. They gave me the job because they were nervous of what I might do if I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think be persistent is the moral of the story. Uh, I did end up, I worked in theatre for a while and then I ended up putting myself through the New York Film Academy. I did an animation course, which uh, is, is so relevant in many ways because of the discipline of animation, but it was completely pointless in terms of what it's really done to get me here. I, I think there is no right or wrong path about film score, not film score. Mm. I, I know people that have been to NYU or the London Film School that can't get arrested, and you know, there's people like me that didn't go to university and kind of put myself through a film course and you know, having the privilege to sit here and talk to you now. So I really don't think there's any one path. I think all I will ever say to anybody that wants to be a director, as I said to the group that were with me before, you have to really need it. There's no point just saying, I want to do it. I think you have to, it has to be like your oxygen. And if it is that, and if you absolutely have to do this, you will find your way, you know, but just look out for every opportunity and grab it with both hands. Brilliant. Gentleman down here. Um, thank you, everybody, for sharing so many fantastic anecdotes and, and expertise. Just got a question for, for Tom, really, about your process of working with um, composers in, in arriving at the score that you want, uh, but also how you might approach the mix of that score in, in, the, uh, in the big scheme of things. 
the, well, I think like all of us, I find that process amazing and fascinating, and, and it's, it's one of those things where <laughs> it, it, it's maybe, I mean, there's so many talented people you work with, but there's something about a composer who can sort of take you to some other place through, through music, which I, I'm in awe of, because I can't do that remotely, you know. Um, I think I can still maybe play smoke on the water on the guitar, but that's possibly <laughs> the limit. So you, you, you kind of, so I, th I think that my, I guess my, the, the process, in, what, what I found that I worked, my preferred way of working is to involve a composer right at the beginning. So the minute I get the script, and there's a couple of people that I love working with, just you know, to, to sort of start talking about the, the script and what, in the same way that you know we were talking about that, that first impression where, where we sort of create the images or the, the, the kind of vision for it. I, I think the, the sound design and the music are, are absolutely part of that process. So I, I uh, try to get to, to sort of work with composers very early. So they generate cues in a very much, you know, it's about their response based on, you know, their feeling about the script, but also on conversations that we've had. And, and then sometimes I'll be in a, in a increasingly less so, but we'll sometimes in a very humble way put together playlists of things that I quite like, which might be bits of score or sometimes not, just to sort of convey because I think the challenge is always, as, as a non-music person, I, I don't have a music language. I can have an emotional language. I can have a, a, a sort of a, a dramatic language. I can have a, I, I can sort of just waffle on about stuff. But I, 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 so you have to sometimes just say, do you know what? That really worked for me. That, and I, or I just don't like the idea of having a very conventional classical score on this. I want it to sort of, but kind of over to you in a sense to, to, to sort of answer that. So then the great thing about having a composer work early on is it means that when the editors are involved, you can kind of ban them from using temp score. So it means it's sort of like, well, look, if the composer's delivered something and you know you want to try out a scene and sort of inflect it one way, and you, haven't, you feel that they haven't delivered what you want, just pick up the phone and talk to them, you know, ask, you know, just say what you're, you're after. So the, you sort of kind of get this dialogue going. And I, you know, obviously thought, wow, Sergio Leone, Ennio Morricone, that's how they work. So you kind of want that thing where you've got all the talent that a composer can bring as early as possible. So you don't do that thing where, which can happen in TV, especially where you deliver a, a, a sort of locked episode covered in temp and they've only got a few weeks to deliver a score, so they haven't really got the space creatively to sort of offer lots of new ideas, because producer, everyone's got so used to what they've been hearing. So I, I, I think the more you can avoid that, the, the better. So that, that, you know, that, that's how I sort of uh, like to, to, you know, to, to approach it. Okay, we've got time for a couple more at most. Lady in the middle, in the black and white, back. Hiya. Um, I want to know what really grabs you about a script. To anyone in particular? Uh, OK. Uh, uh, yeah, Ross. Yeah, Ross. Uh, does, it make me see, does it make me feel something? Yeah, if I feel something, if I hate or love a character, if it makes me laugh or if it makes me cry, that's what gets me. OK. Good short answer. Right, one final question. Lady in red at the end here. Hi. Yeah, th thank you. Total respect. Huge, um, huge respect for e everything you've talked about tonight. Slightly um, left-centre question. You've, been, you've talked beautifully about your HODs. 
Nowadays, more and more, we see names of producers and lots of names of executive producers at the end of shows. And I wondered how that's impacting on your lives, whether it is or it isn't, whether you have any feelings that you're having too many voices talk to you. Okay, let's throw that to Johnny, maybe. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> or not. Um, <laughs> cheers. <laughs> Sorry. Um. <laughs> Don't mention names, Johnny. No, uh, I, th I think... You know, it's an inevitability that there are lots of... As, as budgets go up, particularly, there are more people with vested interests and opinions. But, but frankly, again, just to my earlier point about notes and uh, about whether it impacts on, on the process, um, we were asked earlier as to whether, you know, obviously you'll have had to compromise at some point with your vision because of all the different voices involved. And, and I've never really seen it like that, not that I... It's not, I'm avert to, averse to compromising, but it, compromising by its very nature makes it feel like you've settled for something inferior to what you wanted uh, on both cases, for, for both sides. And that certainly isn't my experience. I think you've got to, you know, you listen, and, and as, as SJ said, you have sort of selective hearing perhaps at times where, you know, you just definitely don't agree with something, but you've got to be responsive to... Um, what's being said about it. This, in a way, it's a microcosm of the, the audience that's going to see it eventually. So it's listening out and having receptors for any of the brilliant nuggets and ideas that come from any of those exec producers, producers, anybody, frankly, on an HODs, even a, you know, a, a runner might say, oh, you know, not they wouldn't necessarily say, well, that, that setup looks a bit shit. <laughs> <laughs> but, but frankly, if they did, then and they had a point, you'd be wise to sort of uh, listen to them. So I, I think it's about how you manage that diplomatically, but sometimes opinions cancel themselves out. I don't know whether you guys yeah. want to I mean, in America, in. there's always like, you know, 15, you know, like when I did Collateral, it was myself, David Hare, a line producer, and we were off, that was it. You know, we were a, we, an hour exec producer. And then my first day on Jessica Jones, there was 15 producer chairs behind me, you know. <laughs> So you just you just roll with it, and I go. I'll be with my monitor on set, so you sort of avoid it. And and then often you'll do a show. I mean, I won't mention names, but in America, I've done shows where I've actually never met some of the ETs. They're not so, actually you know, alive. They're probably. not. They're not around. Well, they're sort of. You know, people get credits who are involved in development, or you know. But I think, you know, to Johnny's point, it's valid. There's no note's a bad note, and it's often what's the note behind the note. You know, nobody likes to get a note in the edit, especially when you've worked so hard on it and you've gone from wanting to shoot yourself in the face to thinking, oh, this is actually quite good. And then somebody comes in and you want to shoot yourself in the face again. It can be very difficult, but I think it's about, yeah, for them. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, it's then about, uh, it's then about I, I think, you know, like Johnny said, listen to the note and, and just people want to be heard as well. So I think, I think it's just par for the course now. You know, you get those lovely things like collateral was a joy because it was such a small group of people, but then we didn't have a lot of money. So we had to work really hard to make what we got. You know, then you have other shows which you've got a lot of money and therefore you do have a lot of names, you know. So you, you go, well, I get all the toys I want and I get to wreck the set and do what I want. And therefore I've got all these people to answer to, you know. And I think in a perfect world, your execs and you want to make the same show. Correct. And, and if you've sold it to them right, and if you've auditioned them as well as they've auditioned you right at the start of the process, then, you know, in the perfect world... You should world, all be making the same thing, you know, hopefully. You, you're, you're, you know, the notes will be useful because it's to the same purpose. Yeah in a perfect world. Brilliant. Well, let's live in that perfect world, at least momentarily. <laughs> I'd like to say a huge thank you 
to Johnny and to SJ and to Tom and to Eros. And thank you to the audience. Um, it's been a great hour and a half. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Thank you.